Amen. Indeed, he is most most powerful God, and there is definitely uh, power in the blood of God. And you know, when you hear that song, you gotta wonder why is there power in the blood of, in in the blood of the Lamb? There is power, power in the blood of the Lamb. Well, that's because the power of that blood is effectual, and it does save you. Um, it's atoning, and the power of the blood of Christ. Um, once it's applied to you, uh, you will receive the power of the Holy Ghost by the all-powerful, omnipotent God who is sovereign over all his creation, such as our topic of discussion tonight. I'm Peter Christian. This is the Grace Hour on Block Talk Radio. It's our Saturday night uh, event, and I have in studio with me tonight uh, my guest co-host, Pastor Scott Price of Gospel of Grace Ministry. Um, I've asked Pastor Scott to come up here and I can interview him, uh, ask him a few questions regarding the uh, topic at hand, the sovereignty of God. Basically, we've covered this topic a couple of shows back, but we've never really cut it open and gotten really into the meat of it. And I feel that no man is better qualified than Pastor Scott, who I've had a chance to listen to uh, his sermon. He's on Sermon Audio as well on Facebook. So you just know that a man is regenerated from God when he is under the spell of uh, love and grace and mercy from God and understanding everything as it pertains to God under his sovereignty, that he is the ruler of all things and creates all things. So having said that, uh, Pastor Scott is in the studio with me. So um, Pastor Scott, I want to introduce you to the audience and thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome. Great, great to have you here. Um, just a little bit of background about yourself. Um, can you just tell us where you're from and your, a little bit about your ministry, um, the church you pastor as well? We're about 18 miles north of downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, and we've got a little little flock there, Gospel of Grace Ministries. And the group now that we have have been there about 16 years, and we stand for God's free and sovereign grace. And uh, we preach the gospel of grace, everything that we teach, even if it's a practical matter, we run it through the, the filter and funnel of the gospel of grace. And uh, it's just a little safe haven there uh, that people have uh, come to, come out of their uh, past religion. And uh, those people seem to be pretty happy there. I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to this discussion about one of my favorite subjects tonight. It's one of my favorite subjects tonight also, because I believe that God's sovereignty is, well, it, it categorizes the whole being of God, right? Uh, the whole being of God is that he is sovereign. If we want to understand anything about the Bible, we we need to, first of all, understanding, we need to, first of all, understand who God is. And without the correct understanding of his lordship, of his sovereignty, you can read the whole Bible ten times over. And without understanding that he's sovereign over all his creation, which is a lot that we're going to break down into, but without understanding that he is sovereign over all his creation, you can read the Bible ten times over, you will still not understand it as it's supposed to be understood. You will not read it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you will not read it from a God-centered perspective. You will probably read it most likely as a, from a man-centered point of view. I agree, yeah. Tell some of the audience who may not understand the, when you're saying uh, that you preach mainly on God's sovereign grace. Can you tell us what sovereign grace is? Because I'm sure that a lot of mainstream Christians, secular Christians, would 
have heard something like that, sovereign grace, I don't think so many of them would understand what it actually means. Yeah, you're probably right. God's free and sovereign grace flows from the God who is sovereign, like you just spoke about in the introduction. If you were to take away that attribute of the sovereignty of God, you strip God of his godhood, and he is no longer God Almighty. He would be an idol. And uh, this truth, of course, is very offensive to people. Uh, not just the truth of God's sovereignty, but what I just stated about it, you know, the, the tolerance of it or the, the taking away of that attribute, what it would cause, that's even offensive to some Reformed Calvinistic sovereign grace people. But grace flows from a sovereign God, and this is a God that's not, doesn't have a plan B. He's not wandering around, uh, as it were, chasing his tail. He's not anxious or nervous. This is one who, from all eternity, has purposed and planned and willed and decreed to have his purpose to glorify himself in his Son, Christ Jesus. And that is through his glorious death as he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And of course, that's going to lead to uh, a limited atonement, which I like to call uh, effectual in particular. But that is, that is usually where I drive it to. I drive it to the atonement. So we can get into that later as far as my question maybe for the audience out there to think about is, why do so many sovereign grace Calvinistic Reformed people embrace some of these theologians who reject a limited particular effectual atonement when that's the very heart of the gospel and it's tied to his sovereignty? But this sovereign God in the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace has chosen a people before time to save and appointed Christ to be their representative. And Christ came in time and was born of a virgin, born under the law, and he fulfilled all the conditions that were required. And he went to the cross and he satisfied law and justice. That's propitiation for his people and for his people alone. And all those people for whom he died will be guaranteed to be secured and be with him forever. And uh, anything other than this is a conditional or a potential or a hypothetical type system which has no guarantees and no assurance. And, and that God that would set up a system of conditionalism or a potential salvation based on you fulfilling conditions is an is a idol of the imagination. It's not the God of the Scripture. So this is uh, <clears throat> maybe a little bit harder stance than what people are used to hearing, but it's a bold dogmatic stance, I believe, that's founded on the Scriptures, and it gives glory to God and gives assurance to His sheep. You um, touched on many points there that I'm really going to dissect and ask you about. We spoke briefly outside of the studio here, and I told you that I wanted you on here so we can do a discussion about the sovereignty of God, and you asked basically what areas or topics do we want to cover under there, and I said, well, it kind of blankets everything, doesn't it? We're going to yeah. touch upon election, we're going to touch upon reprobation, we're going to touch upon regeneration, we're going to touch upon atonement. I mean, God's sovereignty is, is in every single aspect of everything that's in the Bible. Yes, it is. Even upon our decision-making, our quote-unquote so-called free will that we have or not have, our ability to choose Christ or refuse Christ, 
are coming to his call or answering his call, everything is under his sovereignty and lordship. So there, there are so many topics to talk about, and we can't really follow it We're just gonna, because it's all intermingled. Uh, I had a chance, like I told you yesterday, I, I had a chance to, just earlier, uh, I had a chance to listen to a part of your sermon. It's called Chosen in Christ. Wonderful, wonderful sermon. And if you guys are listening, you can certainly uh, go to Sermon Audio and uh, check it out there yourself. It's a series that did a while back. Uh, but I heard uh, what I need to hear. Uh, and the first, uh, I have a, actually I have a clip here. I'm going to play it for the audience. And then we'll go back and, and look into uh, what you said there. So here's that clip. title for the election part is called Chosen in Christ. And we'll get into why that's a good name here in a little while. But this is the Bible study series on unconditional election. We want to be able to say things better, say things clearer, say things that glorify the Lord in the best possible way. I mentioned earlier that this, to me, is exciting. This doctrine is exciting for many reasons because it's the further you go into, quote-unquote, the doctrines of grace, you're getting closer to that middle head, which is the atonement, which is the centerpiece of the gospel. There starts to develop all these questions which get us to think. A ministry of questions and that's what's missing today, first of all, is the idea of thinking and meditating and considering. Remember we did the message on consider? That's what we need to do. We need to read things and consider them. Not just, you know, I'm doing my daily duty by reading this. I'm going to fly through it just to say I read it. But take it in and to chew it and to meditate on it, to consider it. And out of that, questions should flow. Now, sometimes questions we might not know the answer to right away or questions that we think other people will ask that we already know the answer to and we're putting them out as statements that we're going to prepare to tell people. Those type of things, too. You know, as a church, we always talk about how that the body edifies itself and it's not a one-man show. So, you know, I'm throwing it out there. I'm saying we can go as far as we want on this. We can go as deep as we want. We can line up as many questions as we want. There may be some that we already realize we may not ever know the answer to this question. But here's a question I've been thinking of. And then the more of those we throw out, I think the more it will cause us all to think together. And it will help, help each other. And we can start, in our own minds, start putting pieces of the puzzle together. This subject, why is the doctrine of election important? You see implications and you see the importance of what's relative to what and how everything is connected. Why is doctrine important? The short answer is because ignorance is dangerous. <laughs> I love that. I love what you said there. Ignorance is dangerous. <laughs> I, I love that part. It's completely dangerous. Ignorance is dangerous, especially when we are dealing with the God of the heaven and earth and hell. Uh, you don't, you're ignorant of him. You're worshiping a different God. And tell us, Scott, how we can get past this ignorant stage of our Christian walk. I mean, you point out a lot of things there from that clip that I value a lot, and I do it myself when I read scriptures. I chew on it, I pause, and I think, why it, Why is God talking like this? Why is he doing this? Why is this happening? Uh, so I'm going to hand it over to you. How do you get over the ignorance of this modern-day Christendom that we're sitting in? Right. Well, that's, that's tough because uh, ignorance, for the most part, I really believe is promoted among churches by mysticism. Some preachers 
the typical scenario of your mega churches where they just get people in and it's about entertainment and they sing for an hour and a half and they do their little sermonette for 15 minutes and they really don't say anything and they skip over passages that we're probably going to look at tonight. They sweep them under the carpet and they keep the people rolling in and the money making and the professional preacher's got his little cushy job there. And those that speak the truth They'll have these little small crowds and some of these preachers, like myself, I have to work a full-time job. I don't get paid to pastor. And what people need to do in general is, no matter what church they go to, is to study by themselves, on their own. They shouldn't be dependent on their pastor to spoon-feed them. They should be like the Bereans, and they should study on their own. And they should take notes, ask questions, and their pastor, hopefully, is willing to take questions. A pastor that won't answer questions, maybe that he feels he's being challenged or intimidated or he's afraid somebody in the congregation will be smarter than them. These mystical-type churches, the way they're run, it's sort of some of the Protestant and Baptist and non-denominational churches are kind of set up like the Catholic church where the, the one man shows the Pope and you don't, you don't challenge him. So he puts the congregation in sort of a dark ages mentality and they're kind of screwed over. You know, he keeps them in the dark and, you know, the idea there. God and study and they need to, to get some sound theological books and study on the side and do that. What I had done in times past, I would find people that were way smarter than me and I would question them. I was not afraid to go to the smartest person I could find. And, and on the opposite side, I would try to find the smartest Armenian I could find. And he might beat me up, you know, especially early on in my earlier days. But mm -hmm. that caused me to jot down questions and get stronger in what I believe. So if a person within themselves has questions that they're afraid to ask because they think they might get an answer that would mess up their system, then, then that's a problem with that person. They need to drop that guard and just humble themselves before God and his truth and seek the truth. Now, hearing all that I've said so far, I don't want anybody to think that we go about this just humanistically by our own power, because we don't. Ignorance is dispelled by the power of God through a revelation of Jesus Christ through the means of his gospel. And until that happens, then really nothing's going to happen. But even the one that doesn't believe the gospel, when we talk to them, we should talk to them in the way that I've just spoken in the first five minutes here, that we need to challenge them. What I usually do is I befriend people. You tell them what your purpose is. You display this God that you hold to, and you give him glory. And you contrast that, and this is a big thing with me. This is what I think helps dispel ignorance and dispel mystery, is you contrast the true God with all these false gods that people have. And mainly I explain to them that if they don't have a God that's the God of the Scripture, then they have a God of their imagination. They have an image in their own mind of a God that suits them. And, you know, God said himself in the Scripture, you, you thought I was altogether like unto yourself. And this is, mm -hmm. the, this is the problem, and this is the natural mindset that people have. I mean, I could go for, you know, passing in the show talking about that part of it, but if you want to 
if you're satisfied with that answer, we can move on. If you have any questions about what I said, I can address those. Definitely. Definitely. I've always said if you can imagine in your own mind and in your own heart what God is like, that is not the real God. Because God is so high up there that none of us in this world for the rest of our lifetime, 100 times over, can never even phantom or imagine what he's like. He's out of our imagination. Right. Anything that we should be able to imagine is based upon our experience and, you know, from what we've seen or heard from someone else. Because you can't imagine what's never, ever been around, especially God, who's kept himself deliberately away from us and bound us over to unbelief. Not just keeping us in the darkness, handed us over to yeah. Satan uh, and to do his will and his uh, under his lordship. How can a creature who's been given up and shunned from the light and grace of God even say that I, I think, you know, I know what he's like. And so that leads me to the next point on this topic is when we try to, because I love my brothers and sisters in Christ and especially even unbelievers, but those who are believers who are stuck in the Arminian thought, holding on to free will and their decision making, I love them because I came out of, from that as well. So when I talk to them, they I understand exactly where they're coming from. I try to approach them in a very soft manner about providing scriptures on leading them to understand the God of the Bible, his sovereignty. I get such huge resistance. They feel that they are insulted. Their intelligence is insulted. Their faith has been attacked, right? And their their worship style is being uh, picked at. Um, that we're picking, that I'm picking at their heart, that I think I'm smarter than them or I'm debasing them or making them feel low. This is a typical response uh, that I would receive from most of the Christians who are still in the Arminian, so to speak, mentality. And I can't pierce through that, and I know it's God who does that work. But how do you take that on? And from your walk, how you presented um, grace, the doctrine of grace unto others, how do you overcome such resistance, or do you even get any resistance? Well, my view is going to be way different, I think, than the... Um, my view is going to be different of conversion, period, as compared to the typical sovereign grace, Calvinistic reform person in what I tolerate as being a legitimate gospel. Mm-hmm. And I know when I start talking about this, people are going to roll their eyes and probably throw stuff at their computer or their phone or whatever, but I believe that there's only one gospel, if the gospel does not feature this God that we're talking about tonight, it, it is just not the gospel because it's a different God. And further into that, as I said, the, the atonement is the centerpiece of the gospel. And if the atonement of someone's message describes an unsovereign God sent this Christ to take a stab at it and did all he can do, and the rest is up to you, and you have to fulfill further conditions, I don't believe that qualifies as a legitimate gospel that is the power of God into salvation. I know people are probably freaking out right now hearing this. A lot of people on my Facebook friends already know I hold this position, but I've held this since like 1986. So it's not like, well, he's just in the cage. If I'm in the cage, I've been in the cage. I'm not getting out of the cage because I think that's the, the biblical doctrine to hold to. And I, and I can talk to people in a loving, patient, caring way and unpack that for them in a way that they say they see that I'm not 
mocking them or making fun of them, and I, and I can't because I used to be in their position. I used to be blind to this truth, and God has revealed it to me through the, the power of the gospel, through the truth of the scriptures. And um, the greatest mission field are, are these churches in so-called Christianity. And everybody you run across is, is basically, by nature, an Armenian. And when I use the phrase Armenian, I just mean they're a conditionalist. They just have conditions. It doesn't matter if it's one or a thousand, they've got conditions. And a condition is basically a work, a meritorious work. And I know some people don't know that that's what they're doing, but it doesn't matter. That is what they're doing. If it takes away the preeminence, preeminence of Christ in the gospel and stabs at his glory, because you well know the five solas, and the five solas were not invented during the Reformation. These were truths, you know, eternal truths that are in the scripture. But this conditional Armenian, Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Amaraldian, doesn't matter. Anything that stabs at the atonement and, and takes Christ's glory away is a conditional grace plus works system. And that is an assault upon the absolute sovereignty of God. And right. you can't this is where have, I keep going right there. Yeah, you, you can't have grace and a little bit of works. It's either all grace or it's works. Right. It's not about perfect knowledge. That's the accusation a lot of times. It's just about knowledge that God gives you about the perfect God and the perfect gospel. It's not about perfect knowledge. Nobody has perfect knowledge, but Christ, his work is perfect. His person mm -hmm. is perfect. And it's just simple faith that God gives to invest in that one as our only hope. So understanding a little bit about limited atonement, how it's effectual, that it's applied not to everyone, that would be under God's sovereignty, right? Right. Um, right. What else would be falling under God's sovereignty? Would you say the, his ability to uh, distribute and delegate powers to others as he sees fit? Some may will get special powers, others won't? Yeah, I think I think when we talk about the sovereignty of God, there's a, a few different sections you could split it up in. You could talk about the sovereignty of God in creation, you could talk about the sovereignty of God in providence. Of course, under providence, it involves governments, um, you know, from the kings all the way down to ones that do the most worst jobs that people would want to have to do in their life. And then there's the part referring to salvation. And in salvation, you've got the elect, and then you've got the, the non-elect. Those are condemned. So, I mean, I think those are like about four or five sections that you could split it up in just for discussion mm -hmm. purposes or teaching mm -hmm. purposes. And mm -hmm. but if you're getting to uh, like governmental or giving power to people, yeah, you know, across the boards, God differentiates in everybody, in everybody without exception. He doesn't treat everybody the same in anything and what he and what he does in their life. At all, I don't think. Is that what you were going okay. towards that direction? Definitely, definitely. I wanted to also yeah. take us back a little bit more. Now, let's go and see. Uh, well, let's say God is sovereign. Definitely, then that means he's what? Omnipotent? All-powerful? Uh, he's om omniscient? All-knowing? 
but when we say God is all-knowing, I think a lot of Christians out there who have told me, and when I ask them, what do you think omniscient means, God all-knowing, what do you think that means? A lot of them actually says, well, he, he knows everything. And I, I ask them, how, would he, how does he know everything? And they would say, well, he, he's, he's seen into the future. That's how he knows. Is that what omnipotence means? No. And, and let me say this real quick first. I don't... I don't want us to forget this because when when I talk to people generally about predestination, and that that's not the predominant thing I talk about, but when it comes up, people usually react and say, "Oh yeah, I believe God knows everything," as if that was predestination, mm-hmm. which it's not. You know, of course, that's part of his his attributes. You know, his his uh, omniscience is part of his uh, essential attributes. But the thing about God knowing everything. When you combine it with his other attributes, like his uh, immutability, the fact that he does not change, God doesn't use his omniscience merely like he looks down in the future and super projects his mind into the future and sees what's going on. He says, oh, okay, and he learns from it. That would be God changing. So all his attributes have to flow together and harmonize. That would be like a plan B almost. That would be God taking man's counsel Nobody counsels him, so he doesn't look and learn and then make his plan and react. As I alluded to earlier, he doesn't, he's not one that would like chase his tail. And when you hear people talking, that's the kind of God I see. When I was a young Christian, I went into a Pentecostal church, and they would always say plan B. God has a plan B, don't worry. Yeah. And I would go along with that, not knowing, <laughs> not knowing any better. But now, you think in hindsight, that's just ridiculous, so... Yeah. God has a plan B. Like, why? He doesn't know what's going to happen. Why does he need a plan B? As if God is like a, a, a computer that only has so many megabytes, and then that's his, he's maxed out. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, right. There's a text somewhere in Acts. I, don't, I can't remember where it's at, but it says, Known unto the Lord are all his ways. He knows them. And some people would look and say, Well, yeah, that's because he you know, looked down through the future. But the point is, why he knows all his ways and all the things that are going to happen is because he's out in front of it. He spearheaded it. He decreed everything. He not only decreed it, but he runs it as it happens. So the end from the beginning? It's way different. It's way different than people naturally think. So basically what you're saying is how God is able to know what's going to happen down in the future is because he wrote the story. <laughs> he tried. He, uh, yeah. he wrote the script. Yeah. yeah. Declaring the end from the beginning. Exactly. So then the next logical question people are going to ask you is, well, so if he, you mean he declared us to sin? He declared us to fall into sin? Yeah. Um, whenever I talk about the gospel and the atonement, it depends on how much time you have with people. You know, if, I, if I'm working with somebody, I've got some time to talk to this person, and uh, I see him every day. So... I go into, you know, the purpose of the atonement and I explain to them this effectual, limited particular atonement and what it does. Now, it actually, in and of itself, is what does the saving, not what you do with it. And when you speak of that atonement being a success and being what saves, and then you contrast that with the fact that, you know, it's, it's not everybody in the world. It's just his sheep, and it's not the rest. 
and I believe according to Matthew 7, it's actually the minority. It's still a great number, but it's the minority of people that have ever run through this earth or ever will. But people can't understand that whole idea unless they believe a particular effectual atonement. And so we talk about sin, you know, that, that's another question. And I've heard some sovereign grace Calvinistic reform people ask this question, which I, I, I can't understand why they'll even ask it. Like, they'll just, and it's not for the, for the congregation to learn from. It's like they're struggling with it. Why did God mm-hmm. let sin come into the world? Mm-hmm. And when they say that, they're kind of giving away what they think about God, that he does have plan Bs. But I have a sort of a mantra, and it's tied to, and some people in the audience know what superlapsarianism is, but what I tell people is Christ must die, therefore Adam must fall. Mm-hmm. And that's the purpose of God. That's the overarching purpose of God is his glory and the death of his son. Therefore, he's got to create a world. He's got to put people on it. And that first federal head, Adam, has got to represent the whole human race, and he has to fall so that the whole world will be under that imputation of that condemnation of that sin. And, of course, before that, of course, uh, you know, Satan has to sin too, and that's in the purpose of God. And God doesn't apologize for that. He doesn't apologize for any of his sovereign acts, as uh, scary as they may sound to people and unfair as they may seem to people. This This is the God of the Bible, and he's God and there is none else. Now, there is no way that you or I can explain that to make it satisfactory for a human with a finite mind to accept and say, okay, now that is fair. We will always say and think, no, that's unfair because this is how we've been trained to think. This is all we know. Even when you read the Bible, this is what we're left with to understand. God created this way because God created. Revelation 4.11, for his glory, all things he has created, and it's for his glory. Right? He doesn't explain nothing why he's done it. The only reason, the only thing that we know, as you explained, he did it because it's his story. He wants Christ in the picture. It's to glorify him. And this is how it's done. I'm sure the Bible doesn't reveal the whole counsel of God. And But we've been privy to know it's what God has given us in this Bible. And what God has said about himself is that he's just, he's love, he's holy, he's righteous, he's full of mercy, he's full of grace. He hates sin, and he's filled with wrath for our sinners. So we have to take that as true, because if God says that he is just, he's a God of justice, that means there's no corruption in him. That means what he's done, even though we think it's unfair, it is fair. We just don't have the mind of God to explain it, to understand how fair it is. We just have to hold on to faith. That's why it's called faith, and we have to understand that everything he's done is just, even though as a human being, even though we're born again and we believe in the doctrine of grace, we can't explain it any better to make it any more soothing for the human to, I guess, digest, right? Yeah, I, I, let me add one thing to that. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier about ignorance and uh, mysticism. Now, even in churches that talk a lot about God's sovereignty and, and even limited atonement, particular effectual atonement, a lot of the pastors will stop short. And, and I, I don't know why. I don't know if they... They maybe know some of these things, and they don't want to, you know, get the congregation nervous, or they don't know these things, or they're just lazy, and they just won't go further. But a lot of times, 
I mean, I listen, I, I listen to quite a big variety of preaching, good preaching and even the, the bad stuff, so I can practice picking out uh, what I've done for a living for years. I'm a quality person, so what I look for wrong things. I'm pretty good at picking out the things that are not right, and I do that to exercise my mind. I'll turn it on the local radio and listen to these guys, and you know, and I, if someone's in the car with me, I'll talk to them about why what he's saying is wrong. But there's a suppression, and whether it's wittingly or unwittingly, there is a continued suppression to not go as far as they should go in looking at this God. Yes, he's out of our reach ultimately, but he's revealed some things, and a lot of people are either on purpose not talking about them, or they're too lazy to dig into them. Maybe they're afraid if they say things like I say in my congregation, they'll lose members. And if that's the case, maybe they should be looking for a job or something, some kind of something to do for a living mm-hmm. and not be preaching. But I just see that over and over again. It kind of gets under my skin of this promotion of ignorance and mysticism in these churches and it ought not be. And uh, we guard against that in our group. You know, we uh, constantly on the lookout for that. I believe a full a church a church should be filled with fully regenerated people who are called by God. And if there's anyone in there who's not called and they're offended by the true gospel of grace, sovereignty of God, hey, then they don't have to be in there, right? It yeah. shouldn't be about numbers. It should be about holding God and uplifting Him first. This is why I'm asking you some very key questions. Because I know that you wouldn't back down from it, and I appreciate that. And I really don't care if people start dropping out and not listening to this program anymore. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Whoever's sticking around and listening to it, that's all, that's all that matters. We get edified out of it, and this is what God has ordained to happen. It's going to go yeah. that way, right? And it should be like yeah. that. Any of the pastors listening here, any student pastors who's going to be listening, please take the word of advice from Pastor Scott. Don't lift up the man. Lift up God. Don't fear the man. Fear God. Preach yeah. truth. Yeah. What does it mean? Can you tell us what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth? Yeah, uh, truth, it, it says in First John that there is no lie of the truth. We know Christ himself is the truth. We know that, I mean, you could give all kind of synonyms there, too, that, that are involved, in, and it's relating to the truth. So God deals in truth. He deals in logic not man's logic. He deals in rational thinking, his rational thinking. There's always a contrast or a parallel of, you know, counterfeit junk that steals ideas from God but yet is not true. And man's system is like this. But God deals in truth. He's accurate. He's precise. He talks about salvation that way. I mean, all those pictures and types and things in the Old Testament you read sometimes and you're falling asleep and some people think, why is all this stuff in here? What are they talking about? This certain type of wood, this certain type of curtain, this mm-hmm. vessel, all this. He's precise and all these things mean something. Right. And he talks about marking things, putting things in books. He sets righteousness with a plummet. These are, these are different tools that are talked about that are used concerning accuracy and all that is getting to is truth. Mm. God doesn't mess with a lie. It's, that's from Satan, the father of lies. So to worship him in spirit would be, of course, you can't come to him straight on without a mediator. 
and without the Spirit of God enlightening you, giving you life to have an understanding to see these things, man could never come up with this limited particular effectual atonement where Christ satisfied law and justice, enabling God to be both a just God and Savior. Man could have never come up with that. That's the, mo- that's the furthest remote opposite of thing man would have ever come up with. Man comes up with conditions, and that's what false religion is. Mm-hmm. Anything, anything that has to do with works is false religion. There's only two types of religion in this world. There's a true religion from God, and there's a, which is grace, and the other religion is from man. It works to get to God. Everything else is just a distraction. Never mind denominations, never mind different cultures, traditions, or everything else. You just got to understand it's either all grace or works. We're going to uh, take a break, uh, let you have a chance to breathe for a bit, take a five-minute break. When we come back, uh, let's take a caller, give you a chance to answer a question outside of myself, and then we'll carry on again with, uh, with our dialogue. So we'll be right back. We are back in studio on Peter Christian Saturday night. Welcome to the Grace Hour. And thank you for being with us in studio with me tonight. I have Pastor Scott Price of Gospel of Grace Ministries. He's kind enough to join us tonight to discuss the topic, a very, very hard topic, especially when you're talking about it in truth on the sovereignty of God. And I've been asking him some pretty tough questions. I don't know how tough they are to him, but a lot of believers probably do not want to even go there. And as he has said earlier, you know, these are, these are questions that people just try to avoid when they read through the Bible or when they're sitting in church and listening to sermons. These questions have crossed everyone's mind, but instead of finding it out by meditating, by reading, by searching, by praying upon it, and by reading and studying through the Word of God and listening to others, you kind of shy away from it. You don't want to listen to it. Welcome back to the studio, uh, Pastor Scott. You still with us? Yes. Great. I have... Um, a caller I'm going to pull in. His name is also Scott. Scott has a question for you. So uh, at this point in time, Scott, if you have a question for the pastor or in general, uh, I invite you to go ahead with it. Okay. If if God decrees all, if he's in control of all, but he said that he wants tempt me more than I'm able to withstand, and then I sin... Has he decreed me to sin? And if he has, then how is that not tempting me more than I'm able to bear? Well, everything without exception, I believe, is decreed of God. You know, you see commands in the scripture that say, thou shalt not do this and that, and as as believers, we are to obey whatever God tells us that's contained within the new covenant. And when we sin against those commands, those clear commands, then their transgressions, and in that sense, they're against his will of command. But they are his ultimate purpose in reference to he has decreed all things, even sin, and it is for his glory. And when God's people sin, and this is another issue that gets into sanctification, which I, I believe a lot of people who claim to be believers are, are messed up on that because they bring also bring conditions into that, and they try to run it on their own, But God brings sin into the believer's life so that the believer will be more dependent on him 
because we know it says if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. God's people continually know where their righteousness comes from. It comes from the Lord our righteousness, Christ Jesus the Lord. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It's Christ. And when we sin, we're driven back to him, and we see our appreciation for that sacrifice, for that sin that we had just committed. And that doesn't make us think, oh, wow, I've got a lot more I can charge up on my sin card. That's not the attitude, and that's not what the Spirit does within us. It drives us back to the gospel. It creates a thankfulness and appreciation and a humility in us. And are we to resist sin, resist temptation? Yes. But it's very clear in Scripture. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't say that there's a slim possibility you might sin. No, First John takes care of that. It talks about he who says he doesn't have sin or hasn't sinned. He's a liar. Makes God a liar. And it says exactly what you're supposed to do when you sin. It's not if you sin. It's when you sin. You have an advocate. So everything that happens goes back to the gospel. That's the centerpiece of everything in the scripture. It goes back to Christ. Does that, okay. does that answer so, the... In a, in a more simple way, if I was to ask you, did, did God decree your last sin that you committed? Okay. He decrees everything without exception. I mean, okay, you so can sit here and all night and say, how about this, how about this? I'll say, say yeah, ahead of time. He, he decreed everything. Right, yeah, he, he decreed everything. But if yeah. he said that he wouldn't tempt us, with more than we could bear, but at the same time decreed our sin, then were, were we not tempted with more than we could bear? If we sin, we're drawn away by our own lusts. I know that. I mean, that, that's our problem. That's, that's why we're in this war. And if it's something that we fall into temptation and, and we can't deal with it, then that's on us because we're sinners still. But we're, we're justified if you're, if you're a believer you still commit sins, even though they're not imputed to your account. It's, it's on you. It's your problem. It's my problem. We're still living in this flesh, and we'll have that warfare as long as we're in this flesh. Can Is there I some say, other way that you're trying to I guarantee this, that, that, um, that we can't sin at all? Like sinless perfection? No, what, I, what I'm trying to say, if, if God has made the promise, and he said, okay, I will, nev- I will never tempt you more than you're able to bear. I promise you that. But then at the same time, it'd be like if I said, I promise that I will never call this radio again. But yet, then I'm decreed to call it. And how, can that, how can those work together? He's promised that he won't tempt us in more of a, a measure than we can bear. I think I got you now. Um, well, again, it's back on us. I mean, we committed the sin. And it's, you, could, you could also talk about the non-elect and accountability. The non-elect runs the law. And they're under the curse of the law. If they don't continue in all things which are written in the book of the law continually to do them all the time, every time, they're under a curse. Well, God, you know, he put that mandate down. And he knew man couldn't do it. And it doesn't matter because they're still accountable. You see the parallel there and the same thing with the believer? For the believer, you know, the believer is the one that's sinning. It's his fault. But yet Christ paid for this and glory goes back to Christ and I deal with my advocate that's his office as a high priest as he's enthroned at the right hand of the Father I go back to him think of that verse I quoted a while ago if righteousness come by the law then Christ died in vain Christ didn't die in vain we know that so after that we are converted 
we still sin. It's not like after you're converted, you believe you can lose your salvation and you got to do certain things to maintain by keeping law. It doesn't work that way. The quickest answer I can give you, it goes back on us. It's our fault. It's okay. my, uh, um, Peter, Peter, am I misunderstanding the question? No, no, you understood it correctly. And I think Scott okay. uh, understands that too. Scott, when you ask something like that, this is what James had to say in the book of James, had to say about temptation, that how are we tempted, basically? He's saying, James 1, 14 to 15, he's saying, basically, we are tempted, okay? The person is tempted when... They are tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed, right? Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. It doesn't still take away your question as well. God has appointed us to make that sin, right? So as I discussed with Pastor Scott previously, earlier, um, we have to go back to the beginning and go to the top and ask ourselves, when God created, did he know what's going to happen? Obviously, because it's part Mm -hmm. of his omnipotence, his power. So we have to ask ourselves, why did he create? Now, do we have anything to say against it? It's not fair. You can't make it. We can't because he's the potter. He has the power to make and create some vessels to honor, some unto dishonor. And I appoint you to look at Revelations chapter 4, verse 11. It says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they are for your being. And when Jesus prayed, he prayed a very, very good prayer. He says, Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. Basically, we all come under subjection under God's sovereignty. He creates and he does as his will. However, if you were to say but he made us imperfect. The only answer I can give you is that next to God, everything is imperfect. We have also Sister Christy in the studio that I brought in. And Christy had a question to Pastor Scott or a comment regarding uh, your comment about super lustering. Christy, am I correct? Yes. yes. I kind of like got lost a few times, but then I was listening on the super Syrian, and whenever I ask questions at church to the pastors or other people that have finished seminaries and whatnot, uh, almost always they do shy away from talking about such things. Most of all, like current events too, they do shy away from talking about things, maybe not to be viewed by other humans as like being led astray or delving into Gnostic knowledge and just always um, strain from such things. And I was always curious. And it seems like people do not want to accept the fact that there was a divine council within the Godhead that we are not involved with. God had made all of us mutable. Anything that's made mutable will corrupt. I mean, this was all done with his own knowledge. And we are, because we mutated from that, we keep uh, denying God and rejecting his sovereignty I think I put it too much all of a sudden because I had so much in my head waiting to speak. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, was, did you have a question along with that or just that your statement? I, I mean, I agree with what you said there for the most yes, part. My question is, why is it that we do avoid asking these questions and talking about it in church? Well, it all depends on uh, what church you're talking about and whether the pastor is a you know truly you know, called of God and approved of God, or is he just a hireling? 
I don't, I don't know your situation, but... No, no, we're in a very uh, reformed OPC. Yeah. And very uh, grounded in the Westminster Confession of Faith, Apostles' Creed. It's all good. Just we do stay away from these deep questions that nags us individually. Yeah. Well, I think the Westminster is primarily infralapsarian confession. Um, before I forget, let me just, if you get Peter, give me a plug from my website here. Um, www.gospeldefense.com and if you go to the tab on the bottom that says helpful links and click on that you'll come up to a, a link from my blog top right hand side superlapsarian web blog and there's all kind of articles about superlapsarianism and related things okay but, that's wonderful yeah so and then you also you know look me up on Facebook and I can we can correspond on the thing if you want but I don't know. You know, primarily the uh, Synod of Dort was made up of a mix of people, both infra and supra. The infra people, they won as far as the way the document was stated. They got their, their wording in there. And um, mm. so that's, you know, primarily most of your confessions are going to lean that way. I see superlapsarianism as it's on an uprise. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really seeing that. You know, there's some form of Calvinism on the uprise, but I think it's like the new Calvinism. Which is sort of a watered down, watered down um, version of it. But yeah, I'm not. I'm not real sure why people won't delve into that. You know, the word superlapsarian is superlapsarianism has the same amount of letters as dispensationalism. So it's not like it's hard to spell or hard to say. You know, because people always talk about dispensationalism. Can but, you uh, like define the two differences? Well, and even under the umbrella of superlapsarian, there's different views. There's there's modified view there's but it's basically the logical order of the decrees of God you know what God had in mind when He decreed everything and this is not just taken from philosophy or anything I mean you can look in the Scripture and build your model uh, uh, the best that you can and it's not you know I don't stand up every week and hammer on superlapsarianism I mean it's implied in some of the things that we talk about when, when I talk about election. Uh, or even the atonement, like I did in the, sort of the introduction of this uh, show. But it has to do with what God had in view in the order of salvation. Um, and basically, did he choose from, in, in his mind, did he choose from a fallen or an unfallen race? I believe that he chose from an unfallen race. And I think, you know, I get that out of Romans 9 and uh, some other texts. But some people want to, when they explain election overall, they give an infralapsarian slant to it, and it kind of gives God, gets him off the hook, and he's allowed to be sovereign in an infralapsarian system. Because he says, well, you know, everybody was going to hell anyway, and he, he didn't have to choose anybody because they're already going to hell. And he just, he chose some, and he just, he let the others just keep going. And that, to me, that kind of softens sovereignty. You look at Romans nine eleven. It talks about for the children being born have not yet done any good or evil. You know verses mm-hmm. like that. And, and then when it talks about the lump, out of the same lump, he mm-hmm. split the people bad. up. He didn't say out of this lump that was already fallen, he saved some out of it, and then he left the ones to continue to be fallen. No, he said this lump. He created these two distinct people. One unto honor, one unto dishonor, one unto mercy, one unto wrath. 
So mm-hmm. those are just a few things. I mean, that's a that's kind of a deep, long subject, but check out that blog and get a hold of me, and we can we can talk more about it. Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Awesome. Um, I'm going to uh, give us um, just a quick break. I'll be right back. What about it, uh, Pastor Scott? You want to give this one a go? If God is sovereign, where does that leave man and his responsibility? Does he have any free will? Actually, can I ask, is his will free? You're talking about man's will? Right. No, man's no man's will is not free. I don't even believe, and I, I say this from a superlapsarian's perspective, I don't even think Adam had a free will because he was decreed to fall. That was God's purpose before Adam was created. And especially after the fall, the will was affected. Man's nature was affected when he took on a sinful nature. And it's it's kind of funny, uh, well, it's sad, really, that people talk about free will now when Adam, who was better than them in, in his nature, chose to sin when he was sinless. You know, now everybody is created in Adam's image, and they have a bent towards sin because they have a sin nature, and everything they do is affected by that sin nature. So, you know, technically speaking, they can't have a free will because their will is affected by their nature. I've heard some people give an example of uh, wolves are free to eat sheep. <laughs> really, they're they're bound to because their nature is to eat sheep. And um, I've written an article on my Superlapsarian blog that, and I want to explain this before people don't have heart attacks, I don't even think God has a free will because God is bound to his own nature. God's not free to sin. God's not free to be unholy or to drop off his uh, immutability or any of his attributes. He's not free to do that. He's bound to his own nature, and he, and he doesn't have a problem with it. He's, he's not got a self-esteem problem saying, oh, man, I wish I wasn't bound to my nature. wish I could be uh, libertarian free and I could choose not to be holy. It's, God doesn't, he doesn't work that way. So free will is a myth overall forever, and it ever has been. It's just a myth. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing. But let me supplement it by saying this. Men and women, they have a will. And I think when we talk about free will to people when we're trying to explain it, we need to insert that idea that, yeah, you have a will. It's just not free. And explain what I just said about the absolute freedom. It's just not free. I mean, you're going to drive down the road and choose to do things and go here and there, but there's some things that are out of of your control. I mean, you could have a heart attack. There's a roadblock. There's different things going on. And your, your desires and your flesh are going to do certain things because of your nature. But you're still exercising your will, whether it be a saved person or one that's not a believer. So hope that answered your question. You took that to a whole new level that I didn't even think about God's will at that point. But, but, you know, I totally agree, and I've said it before, Adam and Eve, their will has never been free. God wouldn't. God created them and said, you know, you, you can do whatever you want here, but you can't eat from that tree. Well, that's not giving free will. That's giving a commandment. Um, and their will are bounded as well under rules by God. So, uh, Scott, I'm going to ask you, a lot of people will say, well, if our will is not free, why does God give us many choices throughout the Bible? Say that again, please. A lot of if people the will is not free, why yeah, does he give us so many choices? That, 
That's right. He's he's giving us throughout the Bible many times. He's asked us to make choices and make choices. That demonstrates that we, he gave us free will. <laughs> no, he, like I had mentioned before about about his law, for example. Um, he even he even gives that uh, people that are born throughout every generation are born accountable to his law, and God knowing that they can't keep it. I mean, that was the purpose of the Old Covenant. The whole purpose of the Old Covenant, he gave it, gave the law to show this isn't going to work for you guys, and it's, and it's your problem. It's not my problem. And um, they're still accountable under that law. And then, of course, the greater purpose, which was the purpose before the world was even created, was for Christ to come and satisfy that law for his people. And then still, his people are under the authority of Christ and to they're told to love the brethren and they're told to serve God in so many different capacities and the option is not there to, and it's you know you can obey this stuff if you want to no you're supposed to obey those things but then of course when we sin like I spoke of before your job is to go to the advocate and our mediator boldly and confess your sin and embrace that forgiveness and that righteousness afresh again each time that we have in Christ and, and show our appreciation for that. So there's no there's no options for anybody really. If uh, you don't obey what God says, it's it's called sin. And of course, the elect those sins are not imputed to their account. They're in the state of the perfect righteousness. They're justified with Christ's righteousness, and they're in the constant state of the non-imputation of sin. They cannot be charged with sin. Those choices are always are always out there. And that's, you know, the letters of the New Testament, you know, Paul, it's mostly problems where Paul and Peter and, and those are, are saying, look, here's some things that were screwed up in this church, and we get to read those. We get to learn from their mistakes. And you know what? We still make some of those mistakes. And that's our problem. And that's we'll have that those problems as long as we live in this flesh. And that's what the war is all about and what Paul was talking about in Romans seven there. What we could add to the conversation when it comes to believers, when we are to comply to certain things that God has us has ordained us to do, we do these because um as it says in Philippians um two 12 and 13, you know, the Armenian runs to verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But verse 13 talks about how that it, God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Mm-hmm. So there's the answer, I think, right there. It's always God's sovereign will. Right. I feel what we're discussing tonight on the topic of sovereignty, and it covers such a vast array of different little areas under it, such as free will and election, uh, atonement, and so forth. I feel that it's such an important topic that every Christian needs to talk about it and get into it and study it and learn it. But uh, the majority, I'm sorry to say, of the Christians out there do not want to pay attention to it. They don't think it's important. They don't think it's worth five minutes of their time to even talk about it. If you bring it up, it will be just like they'd rather sweep it under the rug, put on some worship music, and dance to it. Uh, do you guys agree or disagree with what I've just said, uh, Pastor Scott? Yeah, that's the mindset. And, um, of course, the distinctions I made of, of what the gospel was, and, you know, not very many people believe the gospel, and I contrast that with a false gospel. 
uh, I would just add that caveat to what you said. But yeah, I mean that's the that's the popular religion. They don't they hate the sovereignty of God. They have that attitude. I will not have that one rule over me, because they have that nature that says, you know, me, myself, and I. That's the free will Trinity right there. That's what they're all about. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. That's a new one. I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down here. Free will Trinity. I'm gonna ask you that question. The Lord has called the whole world. And there's a lot of smart, brilliant people in the world, a lot of spiritually, apparently, very spiritual people in the world, a lot of feeling and affectionate people in the world. Everyone is called, but few are chosen. So here's my question. What separates us from them? Why are we running to the sovereign grace, the call of sovereign grace? Why are we clinging on to this limited atonement? Why are we clinging on to us knowing God telling us we're completely depraved, doing no good and have nothing in us to choose him. Why do we love it so much and cling on to it, to it so much when I say 90% of the people there are against it? What makes us a difference? Well, um, your last statement there, what makes a difference? It, God says uh, through Paul, through the inspired word of God, I believe it's in Corinthians, who maketh you to differ? It's, mm-hmm. it's God that makes the difference. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not a very educated guy. I graduated high school. I went to tech school. I'm a seminary dropout, probably more technically a seminary kickout. They didn't like the questions that I asked, so I wasn't invited back. <laughs> and you know, I just had to study on my own. I just had to study on my own and talk to smart people. But this is nothing you can drum up out of your own human wisdom. I mean, if it, it's all the difference in the world of God giving you eyes to see. That's it. God gives eyes to see, which is faith. And he gives an understanding, which roots out that ignorance and that mysticism. And the means are there. I mean, they're, they're, they're available to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And just like Christy was saying, believers are called to assemble together. And if, uh, if they don't, you know, they're going to miss out on, on worship. They're going to miss out on edification one with another and an opportunity mm-hmm. to grow stronger in these things. But the short answer is God makes a difference. There is nothing in man at all that makes a difference because man is dead until God gives them life. Until that happens, nothing's going to happen. So God makes us to differ. Yes. Praise the Lord. Let me me add something in there real quick. Just take a second. Those that are going to churches that are not teaching the sovereign God that we're talking about, you'd be better off going fishing, sleeping in, <laughs> watching cartoons, I don't care what your choice is, get away from that church that's not teaching what we're talking about and find a church right. that teaches it as soon as you can. That's my advice. There's a um, a short little article written, a commentary, I guess, not com- commentary, but Arthur W. Pink, he wrote something, it's called Better to Stay Home and uh, read the Bible, then go to church. Um, it goes a little something like this. I'll just quickly read it through here. We've got about a good okay. uh, 15 minutes left. So it's called, It's Better Stay Home and Read God's Word. And he takes from Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and the devil? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What, argue, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? 
He says, this command is so plain that it requires no interpreter. There's righteousness and wickedness, light and darkness, Christ and the devil, God's temple and idols. What do they have in common? This is a call to godly separation. This passage gives utterance to a divine exhortation to those belonging to Christ to hold aloof from an intimate occasions with the ungodly. It expressly forbids them entering into alliances with the unconverted. It definitely prohibits the children of God walking arm in arm with worldlings. It is an admonition applying to every phase and department of our lives, religious, domestic, social, and commercial. And never perhaps was there a time even more needed pressing on Christianity than now. And, you know, he wrote this when he was alive. And right now, as we see the church, it's, I would say it's much worse because we've multiplied in numbers. So that just echoes with what Scott just said. You know, the church, if it doesn't teach truth and doctrine, really, why are you going? Uh, you're going to go there and poison, get your mind poisoned more with with lies and untruths and worldly teaching. It's nothing to do with what God's teaching. You're really not doing any, any favor for God. Uh, worship, he doesn't look from the outside. He looks from the eternal. And the Lord has said he wants people to worship him in truth, in spirit, and in truth. And in order to worship him in spirit and in truth, first of all, you need his spirit who's going to lead you to that truth. And the truth is he's sovereign. He's sovereign in all creation. He's sovereign in governance. He's he's sovereign in electing. He's, he's sovereign over all things, aspects of our life, even over our will. Right? Can you tell them why it is so vitally important for us to learn of this doctrine on the sovereignty of God? Well, the sovereignty of God is one of uh, God's essential attributes, and you cannot divorce that attribute from his glorious character. The, the acts that he does in redemption and election and all these things involves his absolute sovereignty. And nowhere along the way does man get credit for anything. He, God is the one that, that rules and runs all things, and he's sovereign in every single thing that he does, things that we don't even know about. And God is he's concerned with all those things. And we are to, you know, how many people are taking uh, psychotropic drugs because they have anxiety? Well, this is one thing the sovereignty of God that makes me relax and make me not worry <laughs> about things right. where I can just say, well, I know this sovereign God and no matter what happens, as bad as it may look, he's going to take care of me and he, he's made promises and he's given me the faith and understanding to say yes and amen to who he is and what he has done. And everything is headed up in Christ. Everything focused on Christ. He set Christ forth in preeminence. And if we just keep studying his word, gospel-centered, Christ-focused, and we retain that beautiful character attribute of God's sovereignty along with all his other attributes and, and grow and see how they're all connected, this is a joy in a, in a mundane life that we live you know, until the, the last day that we die. It's, uh, it's our hope and joy. I think that when God um, regenerates one of his elects, that's all they can 
do. They just want to talk about his sovereignty. <laughs> so we're going to uh, close off the show. I want to really appreciate, I want to give a thanks to, and may the Lord continue to bless, bless your ministry, fill you with the Holy Spirit of fire to never back down, never back down to man, always lift up God as he should be. And we are few in numbers, but, um, you know, we have one mighty, mighty big God behind us, and that's all we should be keeping our eyes focused upon. So thank you again for coming on the show. You're welcome. Can we invite you to come back on for any other shows that we have and other topics? I wanted to actually get into a little bit of uh, talk about the election with uh, with Scott tonight, but we ran out of time because sovereignty is just so much to talk about. Perhaps uh, another time, uh, Scott, if you have. Having said that, I bid you a good night. May the Lord bless you and your family. Keep the faith. Um, one thing that I hope you guys have learned uh, to the audience throughout this is when you study the Bible, um, you need to go through it very carefully. Don't just run through it and just say, I've read it. What we mean is read, pause, think, meditate, chew in those words, right? I urge you to read the Bible through and through and notice these points I'm bringing out to you. Scott has said it. Other pastors have said it. You, you, once you face these questions, you will be, be able to understand who the God of the Bible is. All right? This is no way of a short, sharp rebuke, but I do hope that you were edified by it and encouraged to go and read it in the way it should be. Um, this has been another edition of the Grace Hour. Again, I'm Peter uh, Christian, your host, and I thank again my uh, guests on tonight. I do encourage you to be still and know that he is God. He is directing all things to come together for his will and his purpose. So have yourself a good night.